I can do one of two things. The first thing I can do is I can preach you the sermon that I've prepared, okay, which is hard. It's going to be hard to hear for all of us. It's going to be challenging to balance uh, this sermon in light of contextual events. Or I always have a sermon in my back pocket about the beauty of textual criticism. Seriously, I have it. I, I was going to prepare to preach it. So which one do you want? Do you want one which is going to be hard to hear, or do you want textual criticism where in this warm room you will almost certainly fall asleep in your comfortable chair? Anybody one? One. Good. Don't say I didn't warn you. The lectionary today brings us, let me pray because I need to. Let us be a people who have ears to hear. Let us be people who have hearts ready to be broken. And above all, Lord, let us be people who are willing to be wrong. Because your word has been convicting us since the beginning. It's always three steps ahead of us, lighting the path for our feet to tread, exposing the roots that would trip us up in the winding road of life. But sometimes, Lord, exposing those roots means a tougher road, to avoid them. A road of pain, a road of lament, a road of anger. And so we offer those things to you, God, as a holy and precious sacrifice to you. That if we are frustrated, that we would be frustrated for you. That if we are upset, we'd be upset for you. That if our hearts were broken and lament, we'd lament with you. We do all these things in your name, Jesus because you are truly the most scandalous and amazing Messiah we could have ever hoped for. Amen and amen. Today brings us what I would consider to be a greatest hit of the Bible. It's a greatest hit. The story of the Good Samaritan. In fact, it's such a greatest hit that we in uh, this area, at least, actually in the whole of the United States, we love the Good Samaritan so much, we name stuff after the Good Samaritan. You're like, you got to really like something to name something after it. Like we got Good Samaritan Hospital in Downers Grove. We got Good Samaritan Methodist Church up on the north side. Uh, Samaritan Baptist Church, they just infer the good uh, on the south side. You got Samaritan, Good Samaritan Episcopal Church up there on the north side. Uh, on the co but right about the Gold Coast, you have Good Samaritan Auto Clinic, which might be a little tongue-in-cheek because um, I've never known an <laughs> uh, auto clinic to do the work for free. Um, you got a Good Samaritan Kojic Church. It's a little up north. If you don't want all the Good Samaritan, that's a Good Samaritan black church. They know how to celebrate up there. The Kojic Church, Church of God in Christ. We have Good Samaritan laws in this country. You know, we name laws after Good Samaritans. The, law, the Good Samaritan law is the law that allows a medical professional to care for a person in need without risk of malpractice. Maybe I should go to my first slide here. Is this going to work today? Yeah, Neighborology 101. It's the title of this sermon. Good Samaritan laws. We have Good Samaritan media. What's that? Netflix, the most powerful media, I think the most powerful trend producing source right now. If you go through, like it's between HBO and Netflix, like who is driving culture? They just put out like a Hallmark-esque movie called Good Sam, right? 
Anybody seen Good Sam? No? It's terrible. Don't watch it. But it's about a good Samaritan. We literally finished, me and my mom finished the movie, and she was like, let's please watch anything else. It was so bad. But it's literally about a man who just leaves money for people. And he's called Good Sam. What's Sam doing this week? But the problem is we associate Samaritans almost exclusively with one word. If I took a poll of everyone in this room before I started preaching today and I said, uh, one of those tests where you ask them word association tests, I said, okay, first word that comes to your mind, Samaritan, good. Samaritan, Jesus. And that is bad. Let me tell you why that's bad. Because when Jesus talks about Samaritans, he's not talking about good people. Hear that. He's talking about theologically inaccurate people. He's talking literally to what they were called as the moment. It's disgusting terminology. Horrible. But this is what his readers would have heard when he starts telling a story about a Samaritan. When he talks to the Samaritan at the well, which I preached about a couple weeks ago. So I only have one takeaway for you this morning. Unless we embody and embrace this story and what the story means at its core, we will never live. We will never live in Christ. We might live in the world. We might live in something else. But we will never fully embody what it means to be alive in the Holy Spirit. And to do that, I'm only going to make three contextual points. Usually I'm diving into all sorts of context. I started writing this sermon. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Don't worry about that. Um, I started writing this sermon. I had a whole sermon written about the lawyer in the Good Samaritan and how he was testing Jesus. Anyway, I just saved it for another day. So you might hear that one if I have a busy week sometime. Um, But I want to just give you three contextual points, and they all fall inside the story. So let me just, I'm going to retell the story uh, really briefly because you've all probably heard it. And if you haven't, um, this is the summarize. This is the Cliff Notes version. There's a lawyer. He goes to Jesus Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of God, the great teacher in the first century. He goes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, "Uh, what do you think you should do? And the guy goes, well, based on what I know, I think I should love God and I should love my neighbor. It's just those two things. And Jesus goes, yep, do those things and you'll live. And the Samaritan goes back and he goes, okay, okay, okay. Or I'm sorry, the Samaritan, the lawyer goes back and he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. But I'm doing those things, at least he thought he was doing those things, and he goes, but I don't feel like I have it yet. So, so um, who's my neighbor? I know God is, who's my neighbor? And Jesus launches into a story. I think it's appropriate that Jesus launched into a story. He launches into a story all the time, but um, stories are one of the most core ways, the best ways for humans to get information from a story. If I just rattled off a textbook, textbooks are not engaging and you do not remember them. But a story, a story will stick with you. So Jesus tells the story. He says there's a man traveling on a road. Uh, the, the, the NLT text infers something there that he's a Jewish man. That's not actually in the text. That it's just a man. And the, the, the translators, they infer that he's Jewish, but Jesus doesn't say that. He just says there's a man traveling on a road and he's set upon by robbers. Okay. First point. Second point. The robbers, what do they do? They beat him up. They leave him for dead. They take all his stuff. So he's dying on the side of the road. 
And uh, he identifies where the road is. It's between Jerusalem and Jericho. Um, and for context, it's about 14 miles long. Uh, so they beat him up. They leave him for dead. And uh, a, a priest and a Levite, so those are like the religious people. Like, that's like, you know, the, the elders or, or the pastors or the priests, whatever. They pass him up and they're like, not going to stop. And then a Samaritan comes. And the Samaritan, what does he do? He takes care of him, he puts him on his donkey, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He, he completely and totally takes care of the guy. And the lawyer is forced in that moment to re-examine who his neighbor was, and he can't even bring himself to say, when Jesus asked who was the neighbor, he can't bring himself to say the Samaritan. He has to say the one who had mercy on him because he couldn't even, the words wouldn't even form in his mouth because he thought of the Samaritan so disgustingly. And so there's three key points that I think, if you take away nothing else from this text, take away these three key points, you will understand the message at the core of this story. The first key point is that the reason that Samaritans were hated is because they had bad theology. Okay? I just want you to hear this. They had bad theology. This is why the Jewish people hated them. What had happened historically was that Samaritan, see, Jewish men had married Canaanite women. And, and women, Jewish women were allowed to marry Canaanite men. That was okay because women raised the children in that culture and so they would, the ch- children would grow up and be Jewish. But, but if a Canaanite uh, woman married an, a Jewish man or a, man, Can- uh, a Jewish man married a Canaanite woman, then the kids would grow up with really messed up theology because the woman who raised them was a Canaanite. And so they would worship idols and they would do this and they would do that and and, and, and so they were outcasts. They weren't quite as bad as Gentiles, but they were like only half Jewish. And so their practices, their Jewish practices were mixed up with idols. Um, they were theologically unsound. And so when Jesus casts the hero of the story as a Samaritan, Jesus is saying something very, very clear. And maybe we don't hear it today. But he's saying, and this is going to be a gut check to the Protestant evangelicals in the room, He's saying that your good theology is meaningless, is meaningless if it does not lead to heart change. He's saying just having the right answers to the test is not good enough. Knowing who Jesus is is not good enough. You have to believe who Jesus is, which leads to action. Knowing the book of the law, Jesus says this in another place. He says, you you call me the son of God, even the demons know that. Good theology is pointless. And so you have these two, these two groups. You have the first group, the, Samarit- the, the, the second group, the Samaritan. He has bad theology, but he does the right thing. And then you have the first group. And they, these two, they believed rightly. I want you to hear this, right? They, they, they were charged with being holy. They lived and they, they made a vow that they would keep themselves Holy. These two, they came from the line of Abraham, and not just any line of Abraham, they came from the good line of Abraham, the Levites. They were properly circumcised. We talk about that with the book of Galatians. The Samaritan? Maybe, maybe not. They were up to date on their sacrifices. The Samaritans couldn't be up to date on their sacrifices because they weren't welcomed into the temple. So they literally had no sacrificial system. But they were up to date on their sacrifices. They had memorized all the right scriptures, right? They listened to Christian music in the car, right? They didn't listen to all that trash. They attended church regularly, more than we do. 
They gave to Harbor Point Ministries. Are you starting to see what I'm saying? Are you getting it right? Like, they had great stories about Bill, meeting Billy Graham in an airport. You want to tell you, they went to a Christian college. They, were, they served in you men. They waited to have sex until they were married. They didn't drink before 5 p.m. They held the right perspective on the hot-button issues of the time. You know what the hot-button issues are now. They were the ones who had the right perspective. But it didn't help them. The Samaritan with all the wrong answers, the Samaritan who probably wasn't circumcised, wasn't up to date with the sacrifices, he was the one who Jesus says is righteous. That's point one. Samaritans had bad theology and it didn't stop Jesus. It did not stop Jesus from casting him as the hero in the story. So think before you cast someone as the villain who has bad theology. Second thing, Jesus identifies no information about the man. These things are going to seem unrelated, but they're not unrelated. You'll see, we'll get there. He identifies no biographical information about the man who's on the side of the road. Like I said, the NLT, they infuse the word Jewish into there because kind of the assumption in the Gospels, if, if somebody's not named explicitly as not Jewish, that they were Jewish, but that's not, that's not Jesus just used the, the, it's a translation from the Aramaic, it's the Greek word for man, which actually potentially could have even been a woman. It's kind of, that's how that it's, it's used. But no biographical information. We'll, we'll just say that he was a male for, for purposes, but it doesn't say his race. It doesn't say his national origin or his color. It doesn't tell us his occupation. It does not tell us whether he was a citizen of Rome or whether he was a citizen of the right Jewish sect. It doesn't give us his sexual orientation. It doesn't give us his belief system. It doesn't tell us what theological framework or creed he was following gives us no information about his socioeconomic status. Doesn't tell us how much they stole from him, just that they stole from him. Doesn't tell us whether he had the proper health care to be able to afford what the Samaritan had done for him. Only tells us that he was a man. And similarly, it does not tell us why he was on the road. And so often in our culture, when we hear about somebody being beaten and left on the side of the road, we jump to conclusions about that person, especially if we have biographical information that fits certain narratives that we've been told. I want you to think about the media at this time asking the questions on good morning whatever, pick your news station. Well, didn't he know that this was a bad road? That's my third point. Shouldn't he have known that there were robbers there? What was he doing out there all alone? Didn't he carry a weapon? He should have been exercising his constitutional right and stood his ground. Perhaps he was a smuggler. Maybe he was carrying stolen goods. And when the robbers set upon them, set upon him, it was to steal the stuff that he had already stolen. We don't know, right? We can invent these stories. Well, maybe he was a terrorist. Maybe he was actually going to Jerusalem so that he could bomb the city or mess up the festivals. Maybe, maybe it wasn't something he was going to do. Maybe it was something he was done. Maybe he was running from Jerusalem or running from Jericho. Maybe he had committed a murder or he was a thief or he was a rapist 
We know nothing about this man. We know nothing about him. Did he have the proper documentation to enter Jerusalem legally? We don't know. The listeners may have thought to themselves, well, you know, I've never been harmed by robbers on that road. I've never been beaten up. Maybe when the robbers stopped him unjustly, when they stopped him without cause, if he had only complied, he wouldn't have gotten beat up. You ever been told that? When you get stopped by somebody, you're supposed to take your wallet, right? You're supposed to throw it that way and run this way. If he had just done that, if he had just complied with their demands, maybe he wouldn't have gotten himself beat up. To imply that irrespective of circumstances, irrespective of biological or biographical information, irrespective of how somebody or why somebody or when somebody is in a situation where they are harmed, the action of a neighbor is to help. that we do not ask the question of why, we ask the question of how can we help. Third, the road from Jericho to Jerusalem is treacherous. Thank you, Eli, for helping me spell treacherous. Thank you, Google, for helping Eli spell treacherous. I want you to hear this. The Samaritan, when he acts, does not act without fear or personal cost at risk. When he makes the decision to help the man, he does so fully knowing what it might cost him. This road, this 14-mile stretch of road, was known as the Bloody Road. It's what it's called in ancient documents. And some scholars have speculated that it's called the Bloody Road because there's red mountains around it. Those scholars cannot come up with a reason why all the other roads weren't called the Bloody Road where there were red mountains, though. So what we're left to deduce, at least me, you don't have to agree, is that maybe this road was really, really dangerous. In one of his best sermons, I didn't mention this, it's 14 miles long, it elevates more than 3,500 feet. It goes up and down, it razor backs, it cuts through the stone probably much more than 14 miles, but it's straight line. In one of his best sermons, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., in five minutes, does what I have failed to do in ten. He explains this whole parable. He traveled the road from Jericho to Jerusalem himself. And so he said, he speculates why the priest and the Levite might not have stopped. He says, perhaps we imagine that they didn't stop because they would be late for the festival in Jerusalem that they were attending. Maybe they were going up to Jerusalem, not down to Jericho. And they were going to be late for the people who they were supposed to be helping properly. He says, maybe they would have violated some Mosaic law by touching blood within 24 hours of their festival. Perhaps that's why they didn't stop, because of a religious rule. Perhaps they didn't stop, he muses, 
because they were actually on their way down to Jericho to organize a road improvement project to cut the issue of people being robbed off at the root of the problem. But the Reverend Dr. King continues that he imagined a different reason that they did not stop. He believed they did not stop because they were afraid. They asked the question, what if the robbers were still nearby? What if the man had been left as bait? That anyone who stopped to help him would be their next victim? What if the robbers never existed in the first place? It was all a ruse. This man was not actually injured. He was waiting to set upon the first person who knelt down to help him. Perhaps he just wanted a handout. Maybe he was near a cliff. I said it was treacherous. Maybe if they had stopped to help him, they might have gotten pulled over the side of the cliff. Whatever their reason, Dr. King concludes, it comes to one central question. When seeing the man on the side of the road, they ask themselves, what will happen to me if I stop? And when the Samaritan walks along the same road, he stops because he asks the question, what will happen to him if I don't? I want to tell you that this story that we feel like is so far away, 2,000 years ago, many thousands of miles on a road that still exists today that cars drive down now is not far away. Let me tell you a different story. There was a man traveling the Ajo corridor of the Arizona desert. Ajo might as well mean bloody road because over 3,000 people have died there in the last 18 years. He had looked for water for days, but he had found only overturned water jugs. Their contents spilled out over the hot, cracked Arizonian desert. Exhausted and dehydrated and nearly dead, the man collapsed. Along came a geography teacher. Seeing the man, he took pity on him. He tended to his wounds on his feet. He gave him food and water, saving his life from his own canteen. He took him to a nearby camp where he let the man sleep in his own tent, in his own cot. Later that evening, Border Patrol agents in the area who had been seen that very day doing this, this video was taken from the same day in the Ajo Corridor. Border Patrol agents who had been seen kicking over the water jugs that had been left by the geography, geography teacher to try and prevent it from becoming 4,000 deaths found the man in the tent. And the geography teacher and the man 
were both arrested. This is the geography teacher. Now I ask you, friends, who was a neighbor to the man? Was it the man on the right who left water, who gave food, who acted like the Samaritan? Or was it those who were agents of the United States government sworn to serve and protect? Was it Scott Warren or was it people who pour out water? Church, we have an opportunity today to ask one of two questions. We can ask the questions of what will happen to us if we help fleeing migrants. Will we lose jobs? Will it cost us tax dollars? What if terrorists slip in? What if they just take advantage of our grace? What if, what if, what if? Or we can ask the question that I am asking. What will happen to them if we don't? Friends, I'm sick. And many people have speculated that these photos are years old and they were taken during the Obama administration. I don't care which administration it was. I do not expect that this is a partisan issue. It's not. The politics of Christianity transcend the politics of the United States of America. If you go back, our last Democratic president deported more people in the history of the United States than any previous president. Our current president is trying to set the record, especially today, where over 2,000 families are due to be raided. Friends, I am sick because I see a country that I love, the richest nation in the history of the world, putting men, women, and children in concentration camps that have no hugging policies, and in some cases confinement cages that are filled far beyond max capacity because they were born in the wrong place. I am sick when I hear children as young as three being torn away from their parents because I hold my three-year-old in my arms who struggles to be away from his mom and I for even an hour during church. You can see him in the back right now. can't leave us. Can you imagine if they took him from me? I am sick when I hear excuses claiming that his parents or their parents or their any parents are putting children at risk for going on the worst journey that they could ever imagine sometimes through that Ajo corridor where 3,000 plus people have died when they're forced to make that decision because the alternative for their children and them is slavery or civil war or at least near certain death. I am sick when we turn away those seeking asylum in a land where we have too much. It's a problem that we have in the United States. Did you know that? I am sick of hearing about walls and security borders and illegal parole and illegal people 
on land that was stolen by genocide and biological warfare. I am fed up, church, when we Christians seem to have an ever-flowing font of ability to ask, what will happen to me? So I have a question for you this morning. What will happen to them? Go and do likewise.